Good morning, Redeemer. It is great to be with you all this morning. It's great to see such a full service, so many that are back from summer travels. Uh, we didn't travel this summer, my family and I, but we did have uh, an opportunity last week uh, to take a bit of a break and to visit our sister church, uh, the Evangelical Christian Church of Dubai. ECCD is the church that planted Redeemer, uh, that sent Dave along with two elders, a couple of staff members, and about 100 members to plant Redeemer back in February 2010. ECCD is also where I became a Christian. It is where I met my wife, Nikki. It is where we got married. It is where I did an internship uh, before coming here to Redeemer in 2011. It was wonderful just to, to gather with the saints there in Jebel Ali to sit under the preaching of Pastor John Falmer, who played a key role in me coming to faith and to enjoy communion with the body there. It was a wonderful reminder for us just to see how God is building His kingdom here in the UAE. But as wonderful as it was to be there last week, it is even more wonderful to be back here with each and every one of you today. So before we get started this morning, let me take the opportunity to pray for the preaching of the Word. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we come to you after another week. We come to you with burdens, with stresses, and Lord, we are reminded that with all these things that are vying for our attention, Lord, that we are to look to you. And Father, we do pray that that would be true of us today. We pray that as we sit under the preaching of your word, Lord, that you would give us hearts to receive this message ears to hear, eyes to see the glorious truths that you have revealed to us in your word. Father, may you build us up, may you encourage us, may you convict us, but may we be mindful of the hope that is found nowhere else but in you. Father, I do pray that you would be with me. I confess that I am feeling weak, uh, Lord, for this task. But we, Lord, Lord, we know that your grace is sufficient, and we pray that you would bless this time now for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we consider these first 14 verses of John chapter 1, uh, the, the verses that Miriam just read for us, it, it, for me, it I'll be honest, it, it, it did feel a little bit out of place. It, this isn't one of my favorite passages like it is for Pastor Dave. Uh, no, I, I, it just didn't seem to, to fit. I mean, after all, last week we finished with the purpose statement of John chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31. It's, it's kind of the, the summary of the whole book. We've been saying it all along, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. I mean, that really seems like the perfect finishing point to some extent, right? Christ is is risen. He has revealed himself to his disciples, and that's the final proof that John's readers need. 
This climax that we finished off with last week in John chapter 20 has led some to suggest that this chapter, chapter 21 that we're looking at today and next week, is maybe just some kind of epilogue or or postscript, something that the Apostle John just threw in at a later stage. Some have even questioned whether he wrote it at all. But, friends, let me encourage you, we need not doubt the author of this book. We need not doubt the time frame or the authenticity of this chapter. As one commentator notes, rather than bringing the gospel to an end, this really is just characteristic of of John's writing. What does that mean? Well, throughout John's gospel, we have seen John bringing different parts of his narrative to a close and then beginning the next section with words like after this. You see it in uh, chapter 3, verse 22, after he has finished his engagement with Nicodemus. We see it in John chapter 5, verse 1. It also begins with after this, following the healing of the official son. We see the same in John chapter 6, verse 1, John chapter 6, verse 66, John chapter 7, verse 1. Throughout the gospel, he uses variants of this phrase, and at times he uses the word now, as well as the phrase after saying these things. All there to show a new thought or a new scene. So, when we get back to our text this morning, John 21 verse 1, the phrase after this makes perfect sense in light of the whole book. And there's one more thing that I really want to remind us of and encourage us with this morning as we get started. I I mentioned earlier, uh, perhaps you were like me, that when I I read these verses at first, it it didn't uh, fill me with excitement and awe. It's talking about fishing and and, and eating breakfast. Now, I I love breakfast as much as the next guy, but I failed to see what, what this passage was trying to say. It almost seemed a little bit mundane. I mean, after all, it's, it's really next week's passage that Pastor Scott is going to take us through that we see the reinstatement of Peter. We see the full conclusion, the full climax of this gospel. So why not just go straight there? But as is the case with all Scripture, and as we will see this morning, we can confidently, along with the Apostle Paul in his letter to Timothy, say that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, if you haven't already done so, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 21. And as we look at this text this morning, as we look at these first 14 verses, the main heading, the main overarching point that I want us to have in the back of our minds is this. Very simple, three words. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. And to help us think through this, we're going to be looking at three points that are going to serve as our outline this morning. Three points, uh, and they are point number one, the setting in verses one and two. Uh, Point number two is the fishing from verses three to eight. And then point number three is the breakfast from verses 9 to 14. So we have the setting, the fishing, and the breakfast. So let's look at our first point, the setting, beginning in verse 1. After this, 
Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Well, John begins this, this section, this chapter, really just telling us exactly what is about to happen. Jesus is going to reveal himself once again, but this time it will be in a different part of the region. Remember the previous appearances had taken place in Jerusalem where the disciples had been for the Passover feast. As I just mentioned earlier, the passage begins with the phrase, after this, that is following the events of the first day of the week where Christ was raised and appeared to Mary Magdalene outside the tomb. And then he appeared to his disciples that same evening. And then eight days later, he appealed, appeared to the disciples again, but this time with Thomas present. After this, Jesus revealed himself to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, that is the Sea of Galilee. John really is, is setting the scene here for us. He's telling us where this happens and who the key eyewitnesses are going to be to this appearing. Now, John isn't clear in this gospel why it was they were in Galilee. However, we do know that Galilee was the home region of some of the disciples uh, that John names here. So Simon Peter, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, that is James and his brother John who wrote this gospel. They were, they were residents of this area, of Galilee. And given that many Jews would have made their way to Jerusalem for the Passover, it makes sense that they would now be returning back home following the festival. We also get another clue in Matthew 28, in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 28, verse 10, after Christ has risen, he says this, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. It seems that it was also following the command by Jesus that the disciples had now made their way down to Galilee. And this gives us two reasons why we now find ourselves there. But I also want us to consider just briefly the disciples that John mentions here. We have Simon Peter, Nathaniel, Thomas, the sons of Zebedee, and then these two unnamed disciples. Now, we could speculate as to who these disciples were, but I went away from this saying, if John didn't feel it necessary to name them, then it's not necessary for us to speculate and try to figure out who they were. But considering the disciples that are here, the ones that he has mentioned, let's think about it. We have Simon Peter. He's been a, a close confidant and soon to be a key leader in the church. We have Thomas, who we've just seen last week, is a key eyewitness. This is the guy who put his fingers in the, in the, the hands of Christ and his hand in his side. We have uh, the sons of Zebedee, James and John. As I mentioned, James, who wrote this very gospel. And Nathaniel, who interestingly, we haven't, it hasn't been mentioned since John chapter 1, verse 43 to 51. I mean, do you remember how he was described? It says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We have here an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. If nothing else, these men are credible witnesses, eyewitnesses to what is happening. If John wrote these things so that his original audience and us sitting here today would believe, then it makes sense that the names mentioned are there because these men are trustworthy. They are key witnesses to the appearing of Christ. One last thing just for us to consider briefly as we're getting the idea of the setting that John is building for us is the number seven. Why seven? Why only seven disciples named? There are various views on this with some suggesting that the numbers actually symbolizes all of Jesus' disciples. But as D.A. Carson points out, that since John doesn't habitually use this number or even mention the number, the reader actually uh, must do the addition, we cannot be certain. However, as we have seen over the past two weeks, John is building a a case for the resurrection of Jesus. So we can assume that he's doing the same thing here. As J.C. Ryle notes, seven, we may remember, is the number of perfection. And the evidence of seven witnesses was regarded as the most complete evidence that could be given. So all of that really sets the scene for what is about to take place. And that brings us to our second point, the fishing. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Peter says he's going to go fishing. In one sense, it's a bit of a no-brainer. After all, he was a fisherman. That's his job. We should note that even though that's his job, some have actually questioned why Peter and the other disciples would in fact do this. Some have suggested that Peter's response and the others is close to, if not downright, apostasy. How could they even consider going back to their old jobs when Christ is risen? But we need to look closely at what John has revealed to us up to this point. This will give us a clear understanding to what's going on and and even help answer the question why this isn't apostasy. We've already seen the two reasons as to why they are in Galilee. Well, the question is, what were they going to do while they waited? I mean, Galilee is a, a fairly large area, and if we look at what it was said in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus didn't exactly give them a, a specific point where he was going to meet them, or even when that would be. So, what are they going to do? Given that, in all likelihood, they would need money, they would, they would need food, Peter went about getting it the only way he knew how, fishing. 
Another question that some have raised is based on what happened in the previous chapter with the breathing of the Holy Spirit. Why weren't they going out and proclaiming the good news? Why weren't they going out and telling people that Jesus was alive? But as Hudson showed us last week, that wasn't the moment of the promised Holy Spirit that was to come. No, that was going to take place on Pentecost. And as Christ himself has said back in the Upper Room Discourse in John 14, 7, he says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Christ hasn't left yet. So they weren't being disobedient. This was not apostasy. One commentator notes this this fishing expedition and the dialogue that ensues don't read like the lives of men that are spirit-empowered. These are not the lives of men who are on a spirit-empowered mission. It is impossible to imagine any of what we're about to see take place after, uh, in Acts after Pentecost. So Peter tells that those that are with him that he's going to go fishing. And he's going to do it at night, which is a common thing. Why? One, it wasn't as hot. And two, catching fish at night meant that you could go first thing in the morning and sell your really, really fresh fish. But they toil all night, and they don't catch anything. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And these guys have been fishing all night. And these are, Peter and John and, and, and James, I mean, these are seasoned fishermen. They know what it takes to, to catch fish. But they're fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. They're tired. They're ready to go to shore. And just as day breaks, everything changes. And once again, as I mentioned two weeks ago, when we looked at the resurrection, I believe that John is still very intentional with his use of light here. Yes, they had seen the risen Christ twice before this day, but there was still some understanding that was lacking. But it was all starting to make sense. And the fullness of this understanding would only come once Christ had been glorified. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet they didn't know it was Jesus. He says to them, children, do you have any fish? And we aren't sure why the disciples didn't recognize that it was Jesus. It could be that they were, they were spiritually prevented from recognizing him. It could be that it was the early morning and being 100 yards or around 90 meters away could make it hard for him to be recognized. But whatever the case may be, they don't immediately know who this is. And then he asks if they have any fish. The way he asks this word children is explained um, that can be very much used in the way we would say, hey guys, gents, do you have anything to eat? Do you have any any little, little snacks, any little tidbits? And in this culture, in the Galilean culture, that little morsel of food, that little tidbit would often have been a bit of fish. Their response is simple. And perhaps typical of guys who've been out fishing all night and have had no success, they answered him, no. But why would Jesus ask this question? 
Surely, being Christ, he would already know the answer, right? Well, it sets us up for what is about to happen. Look at verse 6. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Jesus tells them to throw their nets back into the water. Now, anyone who has gone fishing with an experienced angler would know that anglers, fishermen, they generally have their special spots. I remember as a young boy, somewhere between the ages of five and seven, waking up really, really early to go on a fishing trip with my dad and my grandfather. You know, we would have to wake up while it was still dark. Uh, we would drive what felt like hours, which was probably just maybe 45 minutes or an hour up the coast, to go to this special spot where my grandfather guaranteed us this is where we're going to find a whopper. This is where we're going to get some really, really big fish. And that, that whopper kind of over time, which miraculously got away, you know, by the time we get home, the size is being exaggerated and we've got this massive, massive fish that just got away and we, we weren't able to bring it home. But one thing you learn when you're fishing with someone who has vast experience and their secret spot is it's considered a definite no-no to suggest that they try a different spot, that they look somewhere else when they haven't caught anything. After all, how could someone who's five, six, seven years old, have any idea about the fishing, the, the swimming patterns of the fish and where they gather in the spot with someone who's had so much more experience. It would often lead to some disgruntlement and usually a very uh, unhappy but submitting, okay, I will show you that it doesn't work, that my spot is the only place to fish. So we could almost imagine that the disciples' response, possibly even led by Peter, to cast the net back into the water was not necessarily a, a good-natured response. It could very well have been a kind of, you're standing on the shore, you think you know better, well, let me just show you. So they throw their nets over the side, and suddenly there is so much fish, they struggle to get the net back into the boat. Verse 7 the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, knows that this is a miraculous catch, that there is only one way something like this could have taken place. He immediately recognizes that man who is on the shore it can be no one else other than Christ. Peter, on the other hand, must have been distracted by all the fish. Because he's paying attention to nothing else until John says to him, It is the Lord. Continuing with verse 7 When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off, which is around 90 meters. Simon Peter wastes no time. He dresses himself, jumps in the water, makes his way back to shore. Guys, you've got this sorted. Once again, in typical Peter fashion, he seemingly acts on impulse. Before thinking, he swims to shore, leaving the others to bring the net in full of fish. 
As we consider the, this, this little section here, as we maybe try to summarize the scenario, we see two common characteristics by two key figures here. Peter and John. We have John with quick insight and Peter with quick action. John's insight leads him to recognize that this is the Lord. Peter's quick action leads him into the water, making his way to shore. I mean, everything just seems to be happening all at once, right? You've got fish flailing about, the guy's struggling to haul the nets onto the boat. John, perhaps standing motionless in awe as he knows who's standing on the shore. And Peter just getting dressed as others struggle, and he just launches himself into the water. It seems chaotic, but at the same time, friends, perhaps you can recognize yourself in this, in this passage, in this section right here. What do I mean? Well, when you heard the gospel, when you responded, when you recognized Christ for the first time, what was that moment like for you? The moment the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ coming to earth, fully God, fully man, living a perfect life of perfect obedience without sin and offering himself up as a sacrifice for you, taking the punishment that you deserve for your sin upon himself, dying the death that you deserve, being raised on the third day, triumphing over sin and death. How did you respond? For some, it's with zeal, it's with action, it's a moment of overwhelming emotion. For others, it's a moment to simply pause, to be in awe of who God is, to be in awe of what He's done and to just simply be still. For others, it's a gradual awakening. God slowly bringing them from, from the darkness into the early light of dawn and finally into the blazing light of the truth of the gospel. What was it for you? What was your response? Was it zeal and action like Peter? I know that's how it was for me. Was it a, a quiet moment of awe? Or was it gradual? Whatever it was, friend, it should leave us in awe, worshiping our Lord. But at the same time, like Peter, being ready to give all our effort, all of our attention to him, not to earn it, no. We cannot earn what has already been done for us, but out of joy and out of love for our God. Or perhaps you're sitting here and all of this sounds completely foreign to you. There's no reference point for you here. This kind of response makes zero sense to you. Is that you? Have you been coming here week in and week out and, and Christ is being held out to you? Has a friend or, or co-worker or family member been telling you that is the Lord, but you are too focused perhaps on the fish, missing the risen Christ? Friend, if that is you, look to Christ. Turn from your sin, from trusting in your own efforts, your own strengths, perhaps even believing that you can somehow earn your way to Christ if you just try hard enough by swimming far enough or, or working valiantly enough, then, then surely you'll be okay, surely you'll be accepted. No, no, turn to the Lord. Look to Him. Trust Him. Christian, 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, if, if you were to look at your response to Christ and compare it to where you are now, how would you describe your life? Are you full of the same passion, this, the same zeal? Are you constantly in awe of Christ, of his work and how he called you? Are you still pursuing him or perhaps are you now focusing on something else? What is distracting you? What is taking your attention from spending time with the Lord? Or perhaps we need to ask, what are the things that we need to cut out from our lives in order to fix our eyes on Him, to look to Christ? It's interesting. According to recent statistics, here in the UAE, there are, a population is around 10.08 million people. 9,978,000 yeah, 9,978,000 are on social media and spend, this is just the UAE, and spend on average three hours and four minutes every single day on social media, with YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram being the most popular platforms. That's 98.99% of our population spending on average three hours and four minutes every single day, that's seven days a week, either scrolling through or watching something. Now, don't get me wrong, these, these platforms and others can be very useful in a variety of of ways, But friends, if we find that our zeal, if we find that our joy, our all for the Lord is waning, maybe this is one area that we need to look at in our own lives. I, I don't give these statistics to shame you, but to show you how even just dedicating a quarter of that time every day to Bible reading and prayer will make a difference. If you take three hours and four minutes, that's 184 minutes. A quarter of that is 46 minutes. I think we could all do with less, with 46 minutes less of social media time. And that's just one example. Social media for non-work-related purposes is often seen as one of the biggest time wasters that we have today. But... Again, maybe you're sitting here and it's something different. Maybe you don't have social media. Maybe it's binge-watching series on Netflix or, or something else. It could even be something good, reading books, good books. Maybe even spending your time reading some of the books that we have on the bookstore. But you're not reading the book. You're not spending your time communing with Him. The question you need to answer is, what is stealing you away from looking to Christ because the truth is friends the more we look to him the more we meditate on God's word the more we spend time in prayer the more we reflect on what Christ has done for us the more our love the more our zeal for the Lord will grow the more the Lord the more that we do that the more the Lord's desires will become our desires friends let us look to Christ That brings us to our third and final point this morning, the breakfast. Verse 9, when they got out, got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. 
So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of them, none of the disciples did ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, and this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. After Peter's swim and the disciples get in their boat to shore, they arrive to see a, a charcoal fire in place. This, this fire already burning with some fish and some bread laid on it. Where the, the bread and the fish came from, we can't be sure, as, as John doesn't say. But, given what we know from this gospel, we can assume with some degree of certainty that this provision was, was supernatural. After all, Jesus wouldn't need to buy bread and fish. And really, this, this moment is, is miraculous, and we have these men who've been toiling all night, were probably exhausted, not only from toiling all night, but now from bringing this large catch to shore, only to find that Christ has already provided for their needs. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Peter, still seemingly fresh from his 100-yard swim, he goes to the boat and, and hauls the net to shore. We're told the net was full of 153 large fish, that, although the net was not torn. You know, as we consider this, this number, this number 153, much time and paper has been used to try and explain the significance of this number. And for the sake of time, I'm, I'm not going to go into detail as to some of the arguments. But I do agree with, with D.A. Carson here when he says that most of the explanations do not relate to this passage very well. They tend to offer, at best, an illusion to an admittedly Johannine theme, but nothing that flows naturally out of John 21.11. If the evangelist has some symbolism in mind connected with the number 153, he has hidden it very well. So while little attention here should maybe be given to the number, we, we could focus on the sheer quantity. I mean, having caught nothing, now they now have this incredible bounty. In their effort and toil, they failed, but at the word of the Lord, they struggled to bring the net to shore. Now, we do need to be cautious here. It would be a mistake for us to apply something to the text that it isn't saying. We could easily take this to mean that, that Christ will bless each of us abundantly, that at his word we'll have more than we can carry. And this is where the prosperity gospel gets it so wrong, it, where it twists the word of God. Yes, the disciples have this incredible haul of fish. It would have given them food, a decent amount of money that they could use for any number of things. But look at what they do. He invites them to come and have breakfast, to forget about the fish, and to fix their eyes on him. Any fisherman would know the fresher the fish, the more it's worth. And yet, they are content 
to be nowhere else right now but communing with Christ. He invites them to have breakfast, and that, that was good enough for them. They didn't need anything else. They didn't need the fish. They didn't need the money. They had Christ. It was good. That was perfect. That was all they needed. It was good enough for them. I wonder, friend, is that good enough for you? None of them would dare ask who you are. They knew that this was the risen Lord. This was Christ. This was the Messiah. And here they are simply sitting around a fire eating breakfast with him. They knew in that moment there was nowhere else on earth that was a better place to be. But while we know that they are content, that they are at peace sitting around the fire with the Lord, this section also reminds us of another important fact. In both Matthew and Mark's accounts of the gospel, when Jesus calls the disciples, he tells them that he will make them fishers of men, that they would go out and and catch followers of Christ, as it were. But one thing this reminds us of is that when it comes to seeing people saved, when it comes to seeing people come to faith, we can toil as much as we want. But without Christ, we can achieve nothing. As I mentioned two weeks ago, it, as it is at His voice, at His command, that we respond. Verse 13, Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. As Christ once again serves his disciples as as he meets their need he offers them more proof of his resurrection to look at him as their lord as their savior as their provider i love how jc ralph puts it he says though risen he would have them see practical proof that he could be touched with the feeling of their infirmities and cared for their bodies as well as their souls he meant not least to remind them of his great miracle of feeding the multitude with a few loaves and fishes. He would freshen their memory of that wondrous miracle and show them that he would continue doing for them what he had formerly done for those who had followed him in the wilderness. And John closes this part of the appearing by telling us that this was now the third time that Christ had appeared to his disciples. He doesn't count Jesus appearing to Mary on the first day of the week because it was not with the other disciples. So strictly speaking, in this account, it was the first time. First on the the night of that first day, then eight days later, and now here. Friends, what a glorious reminder that Christ is indeed alive, seen multiple times by credible witnesses, his body not stolen, his body not an apparition, but his body whole, raised, alive, serving his disciples. As we conclude, there is so much for us to to take away from what we've heard this morning. Friends, if you are tired, if you are weary, if you feel that you are exhausted through the pressures of life with, with work and family, the constant battle with sin, relationships that seem to be draining, let me encourage you to respond the same way the disciples did. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. When we feel that we cannot go on, when we feel like there is nowhere else to turn, turn to Him. Go to Him.
find your rest at his feet. He's taking care of our greatest need through his life, his death, and resurrection. And he says to us, come to me. And just as he prepared a breakfast here for his weary disciples, friends, he has gone ahead to prepare a banquet in heaven for all of those who find their rest and put their trust in him. Friends, look to Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we do praise you that your word is sufficient. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. That your word is sufficient for all things. Even in passages that, as I confess, Lord, seemed mundane at first, but we see just the riches and the beauty and the glory of your majesty, of, of Christ, of, of what he does, of how he calls us to himself, of how he serves us and continues to serve us by taking care of our greatest need through his life, death, and resurrection. Oh Lord, may we be a people, may we be a church that looks to Christ. Lord, forgive us for the way that we have focused our attention on so many other things, things that have taken our attention, taken our focus, taken our joy, taken our zeal away from you. Father, we confess that we have all been guilty of this. And Father, I do pray that we would be stirred up, that we would be renewed with a greater sense of zeal, a greater sense of love for you, and that we would go out and be faithful to proclaim this good news of Christ who is alive. And that we would look to him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.